Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science, and today we're going to talk about the impact of science and technology on people, that is, you and me. But first, we're going to summarize some of the top stories in science, politics, and things that affect your life. First of all, you can't help but notice that lessons from Afghanistan are being written even as we speak. The world was shocked by photographs and videotapes coming out of Afghanistan, heartbreaking photographs and videos showing the signs of desperation as thousands of people tried to flood into the airports. A whole nation was collapsing right before your eyes. But what does it all mean? When historians write the lessons learned from Afghanistan, what are they going to say? Well, first of all, let me say that I saw something similar when I was in the Army. I was in the United States Army from 1968 to 1970 at the height of the Vietnam War. And the Vietnamese Army also collapsed collapsed within a matter of weeks to days. And the question is, why? Why did it happen? That's not the way battles are supposed to be won and fought, according to the textbooks. What went wrong? Well, of course, historians are going to write books about this, but I'll add my two cents worth about the meaning of what happened in Afghanistan. And also, in the news, the Delta variant once again is dominating the headlines. The Delta variant, as I mentioned, is about 60% more contagious than the Alpha variant, which in turn is more contagious and lethal than the original coronavirus that started this whole panic. And in some sense, we are witnessing our Darwinian principle, survival of the fittest. It turns out that 98%, just within a matter of a few months, 98% of all coronavirus victims in the United States suffer from the Delta variant. So we're literally seeing Darwinian principles at work. So what are we going to do about it? On one hand, there's some people that say that come late September, that's when people can get a third shot a third shot of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines, even though, of course, we're still moving into uncharted territories, it's better than getting the virus itself. But we'll say a few things about the fact that there could be new variations also coming in the distance. This means that we have to continually be on guard because these viruses evolve, just like the way Darwin said. And then let me say a few things about fusion power, which is dominating some of the headlines. Out of California, the Livermore National Laboratory, where we design hydrogen bombs, it turns out that a huge, gigantic fusion reactor broke records and unleashed 10 quadrillion watts of power in a single burst of energy. And already the newspapers are making breathless articles saying perhaps fusion the ultimate source of energy is at hand. And what does that mean? Well, first of all, I think a lot of these reports are exaggerated. But yes, a milestone was reached last week at the Livermore National Laboratories. And we'll talk about what is fusion. Is fusion the white knight 
that's going to save us from global warming? Or is it going to be another disappointment? Well, we'll talk about that on exploration. Well, once again, leading off, we're going to say a few things about the heartbreaking photographs and videos coming out of Afghanistan, especially for those individuals that worked with the United States military during the past 20 years of occupation. They fear for their lives. And it's incredible. Within a matter of just days, just days, a military with hundreds of thousands of troops armed with a Navy, armed with an Air Force, armed with some of the most advanced military equipment, collapsed, collapsed within a matter of just days, catching, well, pretty much everyone off guard. But the question is, what are the roots of that? Well, as I mentioned, historians are going to write books going into years from now, trying to tease apart the meaning behind all of this. So I'd like to give my personal spin on the subject, which of course cannot do full justice to the enormous historical forces at work here. First of all, I was in the military. I was in the military from 1968 to 1970 in the United States Infantry. Not Signal Corps, not armor, not artillery, no. The grunts, the, uh, the infantry, the people that actually do the dirty work of occupying enemy territories. And I learned a few things by being in the military. One thing I learned in the military is, well, the United States always wins wars. We have overwhelming military superiority. Why did we win World War II? Well, yes, a lot of it had to do with the bravery of U.S. soldiers, but perhaps the bulk of the reason why we won World War II is overwhelming firepower. We have a huge economic engine that on a turn of a dime can stop making Ford motor cars and Chevrolets and start making tanks and weapons of mass destruction. So this country, well, let's face it, we don't lose wars, we win wars. However, the real question is, can we win the peace? And that's where things begin to fall apart. Yes, we have the boots, the boots on the ground, but do we have the suits? The suits who understand the hearts and minds of the people that we are going to occupy. Now, if you, if you compare the Taliban with the United States Army, there's just no contest. The Afghan army had over 300,000 well-armed, well-trained troops. They had advanced equipment. They had the latest in machine guns and firepower and drones. And what did the Taliban have in contrast? They had a ragtag bunch of unofficial um, people that barely learned how to shoot an AK-47, but there they were. There they were fighting us to the draw. I mean, What's the difference? The difference is, well, among other things, motivation. The Taliban were fighting for something. We were fighting to just hold time and try to knock off as many terrorist cells as we could. But the average Taliban troops, they weren't sophisticated fighters. No, they were country boys taken right out of the fields, given a gun, and they were fighting for something. Some of them said that they were fighting for their country. Yes, you see, Afghanistan has a nickname, the Graveyard for Empires. You have to go back to Alexander the Great. 
You have to go back thousands of years to see the history of this war-torn nation. Yes, it's easy to occupy Afghanistan. Yes, it's easy to defeat a ragtime, disorganized military that is not trained, ill-equipped, but they have one thing going for them, and that is motivation. They're fighting for something, rightly or wrongly, They believe that they're fighting for their people. And that's why, even without firing a single shot, village after village, region after region, in fact, the whole nation of Afghanistan itself, fell, collapsed, without firing a shot. What happened was the troops simply put down their weapons and changed into civilian clothes, and the military blended in to the peasant population. What happened to all that military training? What happened to the Navy, the Air Force, the high-tech equipment? All of that was no match against an army that was ill-equipped, illiterate, and could, could barely put up a fight, push comes to shove. But we did not win their hearts and minds. And yes, you can win the wars, but you can lose the peace. And I think that's what happened here in Afghanistan. We failed to win over the people. Now, we definitely made progress. We definitely tried to educate people in the countryside. We tried to introduce women's rights. We tried, but we missed the boat. Because we have to understand the mind of a, of a teenager in the, the hills of Afghanistan who picks up an AK-47 and wants to take on the greatest military power that the world has ever seen. You know, when I was in the army, every soldier has to ask one question. You can forget about all the saluting and all the jargon that we have to memorize. Every soldier has to ask one question. And that is, are you willing to die for this cause? I had to ask that question to myself. I had to say that when I pick up an M14 or an M16, am I willing to fight and die for my country because this is something I believed in? Well, unfortunately for the United States, many of the Taliban troops came to the conclusion that they were simply not willing to die. In fact, not even willing to fight for a cause that they did not necessarily believe in. So it's something to think about. And that is, if you have an army, even with modern equipment, that's held together by a paycheck, it's no match if they're pitted against local infantries that know the territory, that are willing to blend in with the countryside and the people, and take on some of the greatest military forces in the world. Well, as Mao Zedong used to say, If you're going to fight a guerrilla war, you have to be like fish in an ocean. The ocean being the people, the peasants, the people who make up the bulk of your country. And the fish, the fish are the guerrilla fighters. And who's going to win? Well, most of the time, the military of the United States and the occupying powers win. But as the British learned, as the Russians learned, as the United States learned, is no match against a people who believe that we are the occupying force. 
Well, let's just say a few things about the Delta variant, which is causing so much consternation. For a while, for a brief instant, it looked like we were really the turning the corner on this coronavirus. It looked like we had it on the run. And then, out of nowhere, comes the Delta variant, which is 60% more contagious than the Alpha variant, which in turn is much more contagious and lethal than the original coronavirus, which started this whole mess to begin with. So what does it mean? Well, in the short term, it means that in the coming months, there are going to be booster shots. Perhaps if you got vaccinated, let's say in February, then come October, you may be due for a third Pfizer or Moderna shot. Because, let's face it, the vaccine begins to wear off with time. So in other words, some people are saying that this could be like the seasonal flu. The seasonal flu also has the same capabilities of mutating. The flu virus that you get one year may not resemble so much the flu virus that you got the previous year. And so the makers of the flu virus have to be one step ahead of the game. Because this is Darwinian evolution at work. If you want to blame somebody, well, I guess you can blame Darwin's theory because it's survival of the fittest. Just within a matter of months, 98% of the population of the United States is now being infected by the Delta variant, pushing the Alpha and other variants to the side. And so this, of course, means that the number of hospitalization is rising, rising like it was just many months ago, erasing a lot of the the gains that we made in that time. Now, the death rate is only slowly rising because the Delta variant, thank goodness, is not many times more lethal than the Alpha variant. The Delta variant is simply more contagious, but it does mean, therefore, that the unvaccinated The unvaccinated are a reservoir, a tremendous reservoir for new mutations, new variations, which could affect the people that are vaccinated. But if you see interviews with people that refuse to be vaccinated, there are many reasons. But one of the main reasons is that they don't want to be a guinea pig. They don't want to be a guinea pig because they hear about side effects. They hear about the fact that it's not fully tested. But hey, look at it this way. Life is a series of trade-offs. On one hand, you have to look at the enormous implications if you do get the coronavirus. And one of the side effects of the coronavirus is death. And then look at the side effects if you are vaccinated. Yes, there are some problems. It's not 100% effective. But the Pfizer And the Moderna vaccines are 94 to 95% effective. So if you simply look at the odds, you're much better off getting vaccinated and then, of course, enduring some tiny fraction of them that have side effects versus simply not having any vaccination at all and letting the virus come at you. In fact, you are endangering not just yourself, you're endangering your loved ones, you're endangering other unvaccinated people, and you are endangering even the vaccinated people because A, a fraction of them will actually get the virus, even if they're fully vaccinated, even though it's a small percent, and B, you are a reservoir 
a reservoir of mutations where the next Darwinian uh, level of evolution is going to create an even more lethal version of the coronavirus. So in other words, we thought we had it. We thought for a brief moment that we had turned the corner, but no, we're simply looking at perhaps one more chapter in a never-ending saga. Just remember, for example, that 60% of all diseases, about 60% of all diseases ultimately come from the animal kingdom, meaning that the threat of viruses is forever. As long as we live in close proximity to the animal kingdom, there will be viruses that hop out and infect a good fraction of the population. And also, big news coming from the Livermore National Laboratories this past week. There we have a huge machine called NIF, the National Ignition Facility. It is a laser fusion device, and it set a world's record just the other day by heating up a small pellet of hydrogen and creating a literally a small bomb, tiny microscopic bomb, that released 10 quadrillion watts of power. That is so much it boggles the mind. Take a map of the planet Earth and illuminate it with a flashlight. And that flashlight, of course, is the sun. It turns out that the energy released by the National Ignition Facility is 10% of the entire amount of energy that we get from the sun on the Earth. Amazing. However, let's not get carried away. Fusion power is not just around the corner. But let's say a few things about the pros and cons of fusion power. First of all, fusion power is not the same as fission power, that is, the power of uranium reactors. We see what happens when they go berserk by looking at Fukushima, Three Mile Island, by looking at Chernobyl. They were fission nuclear power plants operating on uranium. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, first you need uranium to get the fission process going, and then you split the uranium atom. That creates waste, barium, krypton, uh, strontium, highly radioactive byproducts of splitting the uranium nucleus. That's called nuclear waste. So nuclear waste is hot, and it can remain hot for millions and millions of years. That's the problem of nuclear waste. Nuclear waste, in some sense, is, well, forever. It's going to be radioactive long after humans are gone. We'll still have radioactive waste left over from the previous version of Homo sapiens. That's a problem. The other problem is a meltdown, a more immediate problem. See, nuclear waste is hot. It lingers even after the fission process has stopped. So even if you shut off the control, if you, even if you shut off the energy of a nuclear power plant, the decay heat, the leftover residual heat from nuclear waste keeps on going, melting its way right through the core and into the ground. In fact, that's what happened at Fukushima, where we had not one, not two, but three nuclear power plants. Temperatures rose beyond 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit, the melting point of uranium dioxide, and uranium melted. In fact, we had almost 100% liquefaction of the nuclear fuel at Fukushima. 
a horrible mess that's going to haunt us for decades to come. That's fusion power. Fusion power, well, if you want to see a fusion reactor, look up. That's right, the sun is a fusion reactor. The stars are fusion reactors. Fusion is the energy source of the universe. In fact, as far as we can tell, Mother Nature does not use uranium at all to make energy. Uranium is dirty, messy, as we said before. Mother Nature says, uh-uh. Mother Nature uses hydrogen gas instead. You heat hydrogen gas to tens of millions of degrees. The protons in the hydrogen collide with each other, and they meld into helium. So that means that hydrogen is fusing into a higher element called helium, releasing energy in the process, according to Einstein's famous theory, E equals mc squared. M is the mass of hydrogen. E is the energy of sunlight that comes out of the sun. That's why the sun shines. Well, what about the drawbacks of fusion? Does it create nuclear waste? Hardly. The main byproduct of the fusion process is helium gas, which is actually commercially valuable. A little bit of steel gets irradiated, but that's about it. Next, do you get a meltdown because of the residual heat? No. Once the fusion process stops, it stops. There's no more heat generation. There's no more nuclear waste to heat things up. In other words, no meltdown. You're not going to have a meltdown of a fusion nuclear power plant. But then you may say, well, what about the fuel supply? Don't you have to have uranium of some sort to get the thing going? And the answer is no. The basic ingredient of a fusion reactor is hydrogen. And where do we find hydrogen? In seawater. Think about that. Seawater. There's plenty of seawater in the Earth. You can extract the hydrogen from the oxygen in H2O. You then heat that hydrogen to hundreds of millions of degrees, and boom, you can get a piece of the sun on the Earth. In fact, that's sometimes a nickname for fusion, the sun in a bottle. So, with so many things going for it, what are the drawbacks? Well, you may say, what about carbon dioxide? Surely this process must release carbon dioxide. And the answer is no. Carbon dioxide is not released because this is not a chemical process. It's a nuclear process. The process of converting hydrogen into helium, which is clean, which is efficient, and that's what Mother Nature uses. Mother Nature doesn't use uranium. To the best of our knowledge, there's only one uranium naturally found reactor that was found by accident in a cave. That's right, on the entire Earth. The only time you will really find a fission nuclear power plant is with a man-made nuclear power plant. A natural one, well, in the main, they just don't exist at all. So, what are the drawbacks? Well, there's a catch. There's always a catch someplace, otherwise we would have had fusion reactors decades ago. What's the catch? The catch is stability. Now, the sun compresses hydrogen gas effortlessly because gravity compresses the star spherically. That's according to Newton's law of gravity, because gravity is unipolar. It only has one pole. 
There's no South Pole. There's only a North Pole, and it's attractive. Therefore, it attracts everything symmetrically. Therefore, the process is quite stable. Now, here's the catch. This is the killer catch. And that is that electromagnetism is bipolar. It has a North Pole and a South Pole. Therefore, to compress to compress hydrogen gas with a North Pole and a South Pole, you have to use all sorts of bizarre tricks. One of them is to create a donut. A donut made out of magnetism allow hydrogen to circulate inside the donut and then squeeze the hydrogen gas inside the donut. Well, as I mentioned, that is very open. So you have a loop made out of air. And then squeeze it. Try to squeeze so inside bulges. Nope. You cannot squeeze a round balloon. That's the problem with the tokamak design using magnetic fields. Now, the people at Livermore cheated a bit. They used the size of a BB containing um, hydrogen in different isotopic forms. And that pellet is put in the middle of a ray, an array of lasers, 192 laser beams that fire simultaneously irradiating the entire surface of this BB. So you got that? You have a laser off to the side. The beam is split up into 192 smaller beams aimed by mirrors. All these are in focus. Now, then the question is, how do you extract energy out of this device? You can't get too close to it. Too dangerous. Here you extract from. The vision process releases a neutron. The neutron carries a lot of energy. The neutron escapes from the reactor and hits what is called the blanket. A blanket, that is, it's spherically symmetric, hollow on the inside. It absorbs the energy of the neutron and heats up. And heat, then, is you can water. You can drop the catch. We do not yet have break-even, the point at which you can get out as much energy as you put in. Right now, this reactor is only 70% effective. It only gives you back 70% of what you put in, in terms of energy. And worse, it only works for a pulse, a brief pulse, tenth of a billionth of a second pulse. You don't want to have to plug in your wall socket if it pulses once a day and creates a huge pulse. No, you want a continuous stream of energy, and we're not there yet. So don't believe the hype. We're not going to have fusion reactors anytime soon, but I personally think it's coming. I don't know when. Every 20 years, the joke is that we physicists say that fusion is 20 more years into the future. Just give us another 20 years. afraid that's it for the first part of exploration. Once again, this is Professor Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And in the second half of exploration, we're going to talk about fusion power. Is it really the magic wand that promises us unlimited energy or not? And also go to my website, mkaku.org, mkaku.org, to find out more about my work. I've written five New York Times bestsellers. The latest one is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. So stay tuned for the second half of 
exploration. Welcome back to Exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku. And once again, if you want to know more about my work, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. Find out about what all the excitement is about. In fact, on Facebook, I have four and a half million fans on Facebook. And my latest book, The God Equation, hit the New York Times bestseller list. Well, what we talked about in the previous half hour was the question of fusion power. There was a breakthrough made in California at the National Ignition Facilities, a fusion reactor three times the size of a football field was able to produce 10 quadrillion watts of power. But, well, what's the catch? The catch was that it was only for a small instant of time one-tenth of one billionth of a second. It was nothing but a flash of light, not the kind of power you want to energize our cities. So in other words, we have a long ways to go. Well, with us today in the second half of exploration is Dr. Charles Seif, author of the book, Sun in a Bottle, talking about the promise, but also realistically speaking, some of the perils of fusion power. I personally believe that one day we will have unlimited power from seawater in the form of fusion reactors, but it may take decades to fulfill that dream. Well, so once again, we have with us Professor Charles Seif talking to us about the promise and the perils of fusion power, the power of the sun on the earth. Uh, Professor Seif, um, you're a journalist. However, you've written about cosmology, and now you've written a new book called Sun in a Bottle, The Strange History of Fusion and the Science of Wishful Thinking. So how did you, as a journalist, get interested in things that most journalists avoid, like the plague? Well, I have to say I'm really a physics geek at heart. Um, Back before I became a journalist, I studied physics and mathematics, and it was only fairly late in my education that I decided that I was more suited to writing than I was to actually performing uh, uh, scientific work. Mm-hmm. So even at the very beginning of my career, uh, I was uh, interested in writing about physics because that's what I loved. And so um, I, my career has been covering physics uh, for a decade and change. And uh, from the very beginning of the time that I was writing, uh, among my first pieces was a large piece about uh, fusion. And uh, coming from the, the physics point of view, I, I thought of this wonderful uh, thing which would solve the world's energy crises. And as a journalist approaching it, I saw that it was a little bit more complex than I, I had initially expected with my physics goggles on. 
Okay, well, let's just jump right into your book. Uh, your book starts out at some of the hairiest days of the Cold War. In 1945, the United States drops a fission bomb on Hiroshima and another fission bomb on Nagasaki based on uranium and plutonium. But then in the 1950s, uh, a new race emerges, not with uranium and plutonium, but with the super, the hydrogen bomb. So explain to us what is the difference between the fission bombs that were dropped on Japan and the super, the hydrogen bomb based on fusion. Well, fission and fusion are two sides of the same coin. In some sense, uh, every atom wants to be iron. It has iron envy. So things which are heavier than iron, like uranium and plutonium, want to split apart in the same sense that a ball wants to roll down a hill. And in the process of splitting apart, they release energy. Uh, fusion, on the other hand, takes light elements. Light elements, on some, in some sense, want to stick together and get heavier, getting closer to iron. Uh, it turns out that the fusion end of the reaction is more energetic per atom than fusion uh, than fission. That is, uh, breaking apart atoms gives you a lot of energy, but fusion, uh, sticking them together, gives you a lot, lot more. So at the end of the Manhattan Project, um, when the project ended, um, they, the United States had a bomb that used fission to power it. Uh, in its simplest form, basically all it did was take two hunks of uranium, stick them together, and wham, you get an explosion. Um, so it was easy to do once you got the uranium material uh, to set off the reaction. Uh, Edward Teller, a physicist at the Manhattan Project, uh, was uh, very strongly in favor of using the other side of the coin, fusion, uh, because he realized that it would lead to a weapon of unlimited power, and he called it the super. And the idea basically was to use an explosion, a nuclear, uh, a fission explosion, to set off a fusion explosion, which was much, much, much greater. And Teller was right. Um, the weapon that he eventually created was vastly more powerful than even what obliterated Hiroshima and Nagasaki. To give you a sense of scale, uh, Hiroshima was a, about a 14 kiloton explosion, the equivalent of 14,000 tons of TNT exploding at the same place at the same time. The first full fusion test called Ivy Mike um, uh, was 10 megatons, 10 million tons, almost 1,000 times larger than uh, Hiroshima. It evaporated the island it was on. And uh, that was just the beginning. In theory, you can make a fusion bomb as large as you want. Um, the biggest ever detonated was the Russian Tsar Bomba, which was more than 50 megatons of TNT. And uh, after a certain point, it's pointless to get larger because you just wind up uh, lifting a larger and larger column of atmosphere into, uh, into space, so it doesn't do that much more damage. Uh, so uh, even though it promised unlimited power, unless you wanted to destroy the Earth, it wasn't that much more effective uh, at uh, doing damage than a, uh, than a fission bomb. Uh, but at the same time, um, the Cold War was getting hot. The Russians had detonated their first nuclear weapon uh, way before Americans thought they could get it, uh, thanks in part to a spy operation uh, that penetrated Los Alamos. Uh, so a panicked America realized, uh, well, we have to get ahead of the Russians and 
uh, keep them keep nuclear supremacy. So they turned to Edward Teller's idea of a super bomb as a way of staying ahead of the Russian nuclear weapon industry. And as we know, uh, the Russians caught up very, very quickly, and it turned into a nuclear stalemate where each side had so many weapons in their arsenal that they could destroy the world many times over. And I should also point out that when I was in high school, uh, Edward Teller was actually my advisor, and he actually sort of guided my career in in the early years uh, when I was at Harvard. However, moving on now, uh, we have the Cold War in full swing, and people are now used to the idea that there is a bomb a thousand times more powerful than the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bomb. But other people have said, well, look at Mother Nature. Mother Nature uses fusion to light up the heavens. So now explain to us how Mother Nature uses the process of fusion, not fission, to light up the universe. Yes, it's, it's fusion is responsible for all life on Earth. Um, the sun is essentially a big ball of hydrogen. It's hydrogen gas, uh, and when it was coalescing, uh, it was compressing itself under its own gravity. And collapsing, compressing objects get hot in general. And so you've got this ball of hydrogen that got hot and dense, hotter and denser. And eventually it got so hot and so dense that the hydrogen, uh, moving extremely fast because of the energy uh, of the temperature, the, the, the high temperatures involved, started slamming into each other with enough force to cause fusion reactions. So once you get a big ball of gas large enough uh, to collapse under its own gravity and heat each other, heat everything up uh, high enough, you get a fusion reaction. And the fusion reaction is what makes the sun shine. Uh, these hydrogens getting converted eventually into helium release energy, and that energy shines out in all directions. That's what makes stars shine. But it's, this reaction is extraordinarily difficult to get going. You need such an enormous ball of hydrogen um, to s- kickstart that fusion reaction uh, that it, it, it's hard to do. Um, even a mass of hydrogen the size of Jupiter, Jupiter is almost like a star. The problem is it's not large enough to get so hot that you start that fusion reaction in its belly. So Jupiter is, in, in essence, everything that a star has except just that extra gravitational oomph to get it hot enough and tight enough to ignite. And in fact, in the movie 2010, Arthur C. Clarke talks about uh, aliens igniting Jupiter, so our solar system becomes a double star system. However, Jupiter would have to be about 10 times bigger uh, at minimum, in order to get uh, ignition. Now, let's talk about the promise, the promise of fusion. Why has fusion um, hypnotized whole generations of inventors and quacks and top physicists? What is the promise of fusion? Why is there so much interest in it? Why have so many charlatans jumped into the game? Imagine if you had a sun on your desktop, that in a little bottle you had a fusion reaction going. If you could get this, if you could have something like this, you basically have an unlimited source of energy. Um, Hydrogen is abundant. It's the most abundant element in the universe. It's everywhere. It's in the oceans. uh, uh, Water is two atoms of of hydrogen from one atom of oxygen. So if you were able to tap into the sun's reaction and turn hydrogen into helium and releasing energy in the process, you can turn this unlimited virtually unlimited source of fuel 
into energy for free. And because the fusion reaction, if, if, you, if you manage to uh, get it working in the right way, you could just keep feeding hydrogen in and helium and energy come out. And helium is clean. I mean, if you, if you wanted to, you could release it into the atmosphere and it would float up into space. Um, and so this promises, in theory, um, unlimited energy with unlimited fuel and no waste. Reality is not quite as simple as that, but that is the promise. Okay, and for Spider-Man fans, uh, for those people who saw Spider-Man 2, uh, Dr. Octopus creates fusion in his laboratory in Manhattan, which is not the place to do it. But the machine looks like a little sun. It looks like actually a star. And you can see uh, sunspots and solar flares on this miniature sun. However, in real life, uh, we don't expect to create a miniature sun like in Spider-Man 2. What will a fusion reactor really look like? Well, there's two main areas that uh, mainstream fusion researchers are looking at to make a, a, a real fusion reactor, and they are lasers and magnets. Uh, lasers uh, are a very clever way of getting the heat and pressure that you need to take a hydrogen pellet and make it collapse and start fusing. Basically, you shine laser light at all from all directions, and you squash a tiny pellet and as it squashes, it compresses, uh, and hopefully it ignites. And if you manage to get lasers that are strong and efficient enough uh, that you create more energy uh, out of that collapsing, fusing, tiny pellet of hydrogen than you consume by getting the lasers going in the first place, then you've got a source of energy. You've got a, uh, a fusion reactor. Um, no one has gotten that far, but it is theoretically possible. Another method is using magnets. Uh, it turns out that magnetic fields uh, affect fusing plasmas like hydrogen. And if you shape a magnetic field right, you can create a bottle with which to contain a very hot uh, cloud of hydrogen. And so uh, a magnetic donut shaped right and uh, with a cloud of hydrogen, you throw heat in, eventually you might get a fusing plasma. And once you get that reaction going, you just ha have to figure out a way of uh, piping new hydrogen in and piping uh, fused helium out, and you've got a source of energy going. Again, uh, these uh, magnetic bottles aren't working to the point where you, put, you get more energy out than you put in uh, heating the plasma and containing it. But in theory, uh, if our magnets improve and our, our knowledge improves over time, you might have a magnetic bottle that contains a miniature sun. Okay. Now, because a fusion machine would use ordinary seawater, which is limitless pretty much, as the basic uh, energy source, and because the energy released is almost limitless, the number of uh, charlatans and quacks that have gone into the business is quite large. So let's talk about some of the false starts and some of the dashed hopes uh, beginning with a Dr. Richter, but the list is long. Let's talk about some of the false starts. Yes, it's, the, the, the goal is so lofty, that the unlimited energy, that the idea of fusion has attracted uh, quacks and hoaxers and genuine scientists who are misguided uh, from the very beginning. Um, in 1951, the world was absolutely stunned to headlines that Argentina, of all places, had solved our energy problems forever. 
there was an ex, a German expat named Ronald Richter who had convinced Juan Perón to fund a research laboratory on a secret island in the middle of a lake uh, to get fusion reactions going in what he called a solar thermotron. Um, and he kept the world going for about a year. People were arguing back and forth. Could he have done it? Could he not have done it? It turns out Richter was uh, barking mad. Um, he uh, would get this wild look in his eyes and dump a whole bunch of gunpowder into his experiment and blow the doors off of his laboratory in gigantic explosions and rush out and write uh, fusion on a piece of ticker tape. Um, and yet, for many for many, many months, he kept Juan Perón's government believing that uh, he was on his way to solving the world's energy crises, and this would be a great prestige for Argentina. Uh, eventually, uh, physicists in Argentina convinced Perón that something was going on uh, that was a little fishy. They went and visited the, the laboratory with their own Geiger counters, and if, in fact, you have fusion reactions going, you should be able to detect neutron radiation coming off, and they detected nothing. So they proved that Ronald Richter was uh, perpetrating a fraud. And contemporary accounts say that he wasted between $4 million and $70 million of the Argentinian uh, treasury in the process of uh, pursuing his dream. Uh, and uh, he disappeared off the world stage very rapidly, as you can imagine. Um, but, in fact, uh, everyone who is involved in fusion some uh, form winds up deceiving themselves or deceiving others about their achievements. In 1958, um, British scientists uh, at a very, very prestigious lab built this machine called Zeta. Uh, Zeta was a magnetic bottle of sorts, and the scientists had convinced themselves that they had gotten fusion in a laboratory. And uh, they cracked open beers. They announced to the world that they were on their way to solving the world's energy crises. Um, turns out that they were wrong, uh, that they were not seeing fusion, that they were deceiving themselves with uh, neutrons. They were seeing neutrons, but it wasn't from fusion that they wanted. Uh, so they had to humiliate themselves on the world stage. After all these tabloids sa said, uh, energy to last, last a lifetime, uh, no, no more energy bills, the British teams had to say, well, uh, not really. Okay, now more recently, uh, we had this huge fiasco concerning uh, two chemists, uh, Pons and Fleischmann, who grabbed world attention. Uh, covers of, I think, Newsweek magazine and the New York Times, and everyone was talking about, well, did Pons and Fleischmann create fusion in a bottle? Not hot fusion, the hot fusion of lasers and magnets, but cold fusion. So tell us a little bit about cold fusion. Yes, yes. In, in 1989, two chemists, uh, one of whom was extremely well uh, uh, celebrated, made this announcement to the press that absolutely stunned the world. They claimed that where these hot fusion, this magnetic fusion, this laser fusion uh, research has been failing for years, wasting tens of billions of dollars, these two chemists, uh, working independently, had spent $100,000, and they had solved the problem. And what they argued was that they managed to pipe hydrogen into a chunk of metal, a palladium, which has the interesting property that soaks up hydrogen like a sponge. And the theory was that if you get enough hydrogen in there, uh, the hydrogen will be forced so close together that they might be forced to fuse. And in doing the research on their own, 
they thought they saw more energy coming out of their palladium, palladium cell than was going in. So they thought they had created a device which was creating fusion energy. Um, so as you can imagine, as soon as this was announced, it was headlines everywhere, cover of Time, cover of Newsweek, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, everywhere was talking about this for months and months and months. Um, it turned out that the scientists were deceiving themselves. Uh, there was a bit of fishiness. Uh, some data was moving back and forth. It's uncertain exactly what was going on, but it, when the cells were reproduced in better circumstances with more sophisticated equipment, it turned out that there was no excess energy and more importantly, there were no neutrons coming out. turns out when you fuse heavy forms of hydrogen together, you expect neutrons to fly away, and neutrons are a sign of fusion. They were seeing no neutrons, and that made it pretty clear that nothing was actually happening. Now, However, yeah. it took these, these uh, it was a huge battle for, for years. It, it, uh, physicists versus chemists became a red state versus blue state thing, uh, where the liberal elite physicists on the East Coast were trying to tear down research from chemists at the University of Utah. Uh, so it became a huge political battle that still affects the physics community on some level. Now, you can simply calculate, using the back of an envelope, the uh, neutron count that would occur if they really had fusion in a bottle, and it's sufficient to kill them. So the very fact that Pons and Fleischmann are still alive uh, means that they could not possibly have attained fusion in a bottle. But then the question is, well, what did they attain? They did get net energy coming out. That's been verified by different laboratories. Some people have gone back to the literature on palladium back in the 1800s, it turns out that a person applied for a patent for one of the first cigarette lighters. He used palladium, put it in water, and attained a net amount of energy, which he used to light a flame, and he got a patent for it, uh, a palladium uh, cigarette lighter. And some people think that that's what they discovered. Well, what are your thoughts? It's been several years since then. What did Pons and Fleischmann really have in their bottle that gave energy? Was it a cigarette lighter or, or what? It's really hard to tell. Palladium has an extraordinarily interesting chemistry. Uh, it has been fooling researchers for years, as you've, as you've noted, that not only is there that patent, uh, a number uh, in the early 20th century, two researchers uh, thought they had achieved fusion in palladium. And uh, because they, they came to, were thinking along the same lines as Pons and Fleischmann were, and they thought they detected helium inside, an excess of helium inside palladium, uh, which would be a nice sign of fusion because you're creating helium. It turns out that they were deceiving themselves because it turns out uh, palladium soaks up helium just as well as it soaks up hydrogen, so you have enriched helium. So if they were seeing excess energy, and it's not entirely clear from the setup of the experiments that they were, I mean, they certainly thought they were, there was some sloppiness, um, but it's certainly possible that they, they were seeing it. It would most likely be a a matter of chemistry, a chemical reaction where bonds are breaking, uh, rather than a nuclear reaction uh, where bonds in the center of a nucleus are being formed. That that uh, uh, the nuclear bonds that change atoms into other atoms uh, are what are changed in a fusion reaction, as opposed to the 
attachments between atoms, which are chemical bonds, which are being changed in a chemical reaction like burning paper or, or cracking water. And so whatever they were seeing almost certainly was a chemical reaction. And chemical reactions are well studied, and there's only so much you can do for solving the world's energy uh, problems with chemical reactions. In fact, burning gasoline is an extraordinarily efficient chemical reaction that allows us to power our cars. Um, so it's not certain that there's anything there for solving the world's energy uh, problems unless you have a nuclear reaction of some sort. It's pretty clear that that is not what they saw. Now, to a physicist, it was absolutely staggering that you had these two respected chemists that didn't understand anything about the quantum theory. If you, if you bring the protons together very closely, as you mentioned, then you could attain fusion. But you have to bring them really close, uh, 10 to the minus 13 centimeters. However, in the, the Pons and Fleischmann experiment, these atoms are separated by 10 to the minus 8 centimeters, and you can simply, using a back of an envelope calculation, this is what we give our undergraduates. Our undergraduates can calculate that the fusion you get in a bottle is almost zero as a consequence. So for the physics community, what was absolutely staggering is the fact that chemists don't know any physics at all. Well, let's move on because we had a story, another apparently fraudulent story that just took place a few months ago this time at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, involving something called bubble fusion. So explain to us what is bubble fusion and how did the Nazis, of all people, first stumble onto this whole thing called sonoluminescence? Yes, uh, sonoluminescence is this really bizarre um, reaction, and it's, it's only very recently been understood, uh, where uh, basically you take sound waves, and you bombard a liquid with it, and you induce what's called cavitation. Under the right circumstances, if you hit water very hard, it actually behaves like a solid, and it can crack. And just for a tiny, tiny fraction of a second, you can cause a crack in water. And what happens when you have that crack is you create a little vacuum, and that vacuum causes water to evaporate and causes a bubble. Um, by bombarding liquids with sound waves, you cause these bubbles, and if you time those sound waves just right, you can cause those bubbles to collapse very dramatically. And uh, it was discovered that if you do this just right, you get such a dramatic collapse that you get some sort of reaction. No one quite knows exactly what it is, even today, um, that causes a little flash of blue light. I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. And our special guest today was Charles Seif, a professor at NYU and author of the book, Sun in a Bottle, talking about the prospects of fusion power. Now, the interview is pre-recorded, and as we mentioned earlier in the show, there's been a new development at Livermore National Laboratory where they test and design the components of hydrogen warheads. Laser fusion 
is in the news. However, let's be real about this. Even though laser fusion represents a milestone in the recent breakthrough, even though it means that there is progress in terms of using lasers to ignite a fusion reactor, we still have a long ways to go. We're not close to break-even yet. That is the point at which we can extract as much energy as we put in. And of course, we can only extract energy in tiny bursts of energy. We need a near continuous source of energy if we're going to use that to drive our cities. But let's be frank, I think it is only a matter of time. It may take decades before we can finally master all the intricacies of fusion power, and it could very well be the energy source of our children and grandchildren. So in other words, it is the energy of the future. It has very little nuclear waste to speak of, cannot melt down, uses seawater for its hydrogen fuel. So it's the ideal source of energy if we can only solve the stability problem and extract continuous energy from the power of the atom. We're not there yet. Sorry about that. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku for Exploration.